The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 36 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never knowingly disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, I hope everybody had a great Father's Day weekend. I mean, the weather was great up here on the East Coast in New York City. What a wonderful weekend. I had a really great time. It was like the perfect weekend for me. I mean, I was playing ball with the kids. We were just cooking out, listening to music, you know, plenty of laughs. Just wish every day could be like that. Good times. Good times. So we had a great show last week with John Frazzini, the president and CEO of Security Systems Innovation Corporation, otherwise known as SSIC, talking about the convergence of cybersecurity industry and the insurance industry, creating a whole new cyber insurance market, that is working to transfer residual risk companies are left with after cybersecurity teams get done deploying all their controls. This, of course, is being transferred to traditional insurance companies who are now getting into the cyber insurance market. It was a very educational conversation. I mean, this is a big market that very well may drive how CISOs structure their security models in the future. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to uh, John in the show last week, definitely check it out. John Frazzini, appearing on episode number 35 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're wondering how you can go back and listen to John's episode or any other episode of Task Force 7 Radio, you can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and, of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So, all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you'll get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please... Don't forget to subscribe, folks. Yeah, you'll automatically get updates, folks, when you subscribe. You get the updates, notifications on all new shows. And subscribing is the way to go. We really appreciate it. And we track it. We monitor it. So don't forget to subscribe. 
So we have an awesome show for you tonight. William Beer is going to be with us to talk about cybersecurity's role in the digital transformation era. That's right, digital transformation. That's a topic that everybody's talking about these days. You can't go anywhere. I know at RSA, everybody was talking about digital transformation. William, he's a partner in the cybersecurity advisory services practice for Ernst & Young. One of the big four, that's one of the big players in his work just dedicated to the financial services sector. His professional experience spans over 25 years in four continents in a wide range of global leadership roles, ranging from building cybersecurity businesses to CISO advisory roles. But William's experience spans to more than just the financial services sector. He has extensive experience in the government, defense, oil and gas, and telecommunication sectors as well. So William is highly respected for his brilliant history of having helped large clients find creative ways to manage constantly shifting information security and cybersecurity risk. So there's no doubt about his ability to think differently about what may lie ahead, all right? As opposed to what's been happening right now, William thinks about what's going to happen in the future, and I know William very well. He's a visionary in the true sense of the word. His deep international experience enables him to design programs that work effectively across different cultures and business requirements. And of course, he lectures at universities. He's a guest speaker at events all around the world. I mean, he's seen everywhere. He's a cybersecurity subject matter expert, folks, and he's a good friend of mine. He's a really good dude. So stay tuned. William Beer, partner with Ernst & Young, coming up on the second and third segments of the show. But first, some cybersecurity news and analysis. I want to follow up on what I spoke about last week, and that is the pillaging of America's future by the government of China through the persistent theft of intellectual property from America's companies over decades. And this is a constant, persistent effort that continues on despite promises from China's government that they would cease and desist any type of uh, actions or any type of uh, effort in this space, which we all knew was sort of BS from the beginning, right? So when we talked about this last week, and if you you didn't hear the show, I encourage you to go back. We're not going to repeat what we said last week. We're not going to redo the show. That's not what we do here. Uh, we got a whole brand new show here for you today. But I encourage you to go back and listen to what we said because it kind of sets up some of the discussion and dialogue that we're going to have today. So after last week's show, President Trump imposed tariffs on $50 billion of Chinese products being imported into the United States, in part to punish China for continuing to steal from the United States. And I'm going to keep saying it until it starts kicking in with everybody, all right? They are stealing from us, okay? Committing crimes against the United States, committing crimes against your businesses, committing crimes against your families, committing crimes against our futures, all right? It's a disgrace. It makes me sick to my stomach, okay? And I keep saying it until it gets through. So after, after last, last week's tariffs were imposed, I see this article on Friday in the Washington Post entitled, With tariffs, Trump starts unraveling a quarter century of U.S.-China economic ties. That's right. That was the headline. It wasn't, with tariffs, the United States finally has a leader with a spine who is willing to tell China, enough is enough. That's right. That's right. Stop stealing from us, you pickpocketing collection of cyber crooks. No, of course, it didn't say that. Of course it didn't. It said, with tariffs. Trump starts unraveling a quarter century of U.S.-China economic ties. With no mention of why he's doing that. With no mention of what he did, why he's doing what he did. Only that he did something that in their mind, or that 
Maybe they want others to perceive is purposely being done to hurt relations between China and the United States, which is just very disingenuous, folks. It's very deceitful, in my opinion. And it's weak. And most of all, it's just weak. It's freaking weak. Okay? It's the kind of weakness that got us into this mess in the first place. So the, the article goes on. The, the decision marked the president's boldest steps so far to implement his America First strategy, which he promises will shrink the $811 billion merchandise trade deficit and return lost man- manufacturing jobs to the United States. How about saying this? How about it's a step? How about it's, it's, it, this is a step in America, Americans are taking to stop China from stealing from us? How about that? You could call it America First. You could call it protecting ourselves from criminals. Call it, you know, finding a spine and doing the right thing. Call it what you want, but that's what it is, right? Now, it goes on that Trump's aggressive approach is rattling American corporate leaders and his Republican allies in Congress as Chinese officials show no sign of capitulating. Like, you know, all our, you know we should all be sitting here shaking in our boots because they're, they're not showing any signs of capitulating. Remember, folks, America has an $811 billion trade deficit. That's right, $811 billion because prior administrations on both sides of the aisle have been just giving it away. All right, giving it away. Now, we're talking about this in terms of the cybersecurity piece of this, but it broads out into a larger discussion that we have to, we have, to have a dialogue about because it, every, it kind of pulls in everything in the sign. Once you start talking about the IP theft, then it kind of brings in this, this very complex conversation, right? So it took, you know, the article is, oh, it took a little bit more than an hour for the Ministry of Commerce in Beijing to fire back at the president with a late-night statement pledged to erect trade barriers of the same scale and same strength. Big deal. Big deal. The president said he was going to do this in March, okay? He got four months to prepare like a two-sentence statement, and the Washington Post acts like they got up in the middle of the night and slammed back real hard like we should all be terrified. What a joke. What's not a joke is that what China is going to do is going to have real consequences for the American consumer and American manufacturers and especially farmers. China is targeting agricultural goods, cars, and energy in a bid to hit the president's supporters in farm states in the industrial Midwest. Of course, they're, they're going after what they see as President Trump's base to try to get him to stop doing what he's doing. But I got news for you, China. You're messing with the wrong president, right? He's not the, he's not the guy that's going to back down. And America has had enough. You're not just stealing from Republicans. You're not just stealing from Democrats. You're stealing from all of us, you miscreants. And we're tired of it. Enough is enough. Over the past decade, two-way trade between the U.S. and Chinese ports has grown by two-thirds to nearly $700 billion annually. And that's a, that's a good thing. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of money at stake here. Eswar Prasad, the former head of the International Monetary Fund's China division, said that given China's unwillingness to capitulate to U.S. demands, it is difficult to see a path to a negotiated settlement that avoids a big hit to trade and investment flows between the two countries. Trump's trade sanctions constitute a significant strike against rising global integration. I mean, I got to tell you something, Eswar. I don't even think we got started yet. This is not something I see us backing down on. You know, I know... Americans are sick of this, sick of it. 
The article goes on and it goes on to say that there's other signs that the two economies may not be as tightly bound in the future as they have been in the past. And all this is kind of relative to cybersecurity. The administration is expected on June 30th to make public new restrictions on Chinese investments in U.S. technologies. Now, Chinese officials, meanwhile, have amounted a lavishly, lavishly funded research and development program aimed at reducing their dependence on U.S. companies for key components such as semiconductors. So, I mean, I, you got to be kidding me with that, right? I mean, it's kind of a joke. I mean, you, well, you ask me, why is it a joke? Well, I'll tell you. It, why, why depend on doing business with U.S. semiconductor companies when you've already stolen all of their intellectual property and technology secrets? I mean, come on. What are we talking about here? Aren't they the brave ones? Joke. Total joke. So I support the administration's new restrictions on Chinese investment in U.S. technologies. I mean, they steal, you know, what is it, 225 to 600 billion? Let's just call it 400 billion dollars a year from us a year, and then they use that money to buy our technology companies. They use the money that they make off the off those stolen secrets to buy and invest in our technology companies. So now they own the whole company. And I mean, let me tell you something, folks. It's time for us as a nation to come together and smarten up before we allow our futures to be completely destroyed by a communist government who does not have the same values and views of the world that you do, that Americans do, that the West does, no matter what your political affiliation. So administration officials say the tariffs are needed to compel China to modify elements of its state-led economic system that disadvantage private companies. Efforts over several years to persuade Beijing to reduce the government's role in key industries and drop special requirements placed on foreign companies have failed. So the Post spoke to someone, a senior administration official, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the president's thinking, who had this to say. We had two systems which were supposed to converge after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 into two market economies. What we got was a much larger Chinese non-market economy that has become structurally different in ways that threaten U.S. economic prosperity and national security. I think that's a pretty important statement. So Trump appears to be gambling on uh, that the imposition of the tariffs, even if it triggers a retaliatory spiral, will force China to surrender. And administration officials are confident that China needs the 20 trillion U.S. dollar or 20 trillion dollar U.S. market more than America, uh, Americans' businesses need China. And that China has more to lose from a trade war, given that it enjoys a huge trade surplus with the United States, which sounds pretty on the money to me. I mean, I think that's all true, and it seems, it seems logical, right? I mean, they have a lot more to lose on this than we do. And all we want them to do is stop stealing from us. I mean, I don't think that's a lot to ask, quite honestly. So it says that many China experts doubt the U.S. strategy will succeed. So unlike, unlike Trump, President Xi Jinping does not have to worry about unhappy con constituents complaining about the cost of a trade war. That's right, because if you open your mouth over in China, you get run over by a tank. That's why, right? So that makes sense. I mean, Trump has voters and constituents to answer to. And the president of China doesn't have to answer to anybody. So American businesses that ex experience supply disruptions and, and farmers who lose export sales as China retaliates will let congressional representatives hear about it. I'm sure they will, right? I mean, we don't want these people to get hurt. Uh, and look, I understand. Like, I'm not stupid, right? I understand. This is not the, you know, the, the, the perfect answer to anything. 
does not. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not one who wants to impose tariffs and start trade wars, and because a lot of this is going to come back and hurt American companies and consumers. We know that, right? I know that, right? We're not dumb, right? Trade measures designed to punish China will also hurt other countries, including U.S. allies, as well as American companies. Roughly 60% of the $505 billion in goods in the United States imports from China originates in the Chinese affiliates of multinational corporations, according to econ economist Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. It's a good point. So I can't, I can't imagine that the Chinese are going to back down, he says, after saying this, right? And then he goes on to say something which I don't think is a good point. China is likely to prevail, and Trump will have to find some way to back down. <laughs> really? Really, dude? Like, let me tell you something, Nicholas. Have you seen President Trump back down on anything yet? I mean, come on. Anything. One thing. Name one. I mean, I think that comment is supported by nothing. It's just a bunch of rhetoric, all right? And, and, and it's nothing but rhetoric. So U.S. and Chinese officials in recent weeks had made progress on a deal that involved up to $70 billion in additional purchases of American products, but the Chinese offer is now invalid, the statement from Beijing said. But hey, look, many lawmakers here at home, including Senator Mark Rubio, who's been critical of the president, issued public statements backing the tariffs. That's because people are sick of what's going on here, right? Now get this, get this. The president's actions on China are on the money. Guess who said that? Take a guess. Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer out of the great state of New York. That's right, Chuck Schumer just said the president's actions on China are on the money. Yeah, baby. So he went on to say, China is our real trade enemy and their theft of intellectual property and their refusal to let our companies compete fairly threatens millions of, a fu of future American jobs. Now, I wanna, I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read that again in case anybody has wax in their ears. They need to turn up the volume a little bit. All right, turn it up. Ready? Chuck Schumer out of the great state of New York. China is our real trade enemy and their theft of intellectual property and their refusal to let our companies compete fairly threatens millions of future American jobs. And that's the Democrats, my leader, supporting Donald Trump. You know, Chuck Schumer emerging out of the smoke like Richie Sambora at a Bon Jovi concert in 87, dropping a truth bomb on China. Yeah. How do you like me now? Hmm. No, I get it. Look, many lawmakers, they, they, they're concerned. Everybody's concerned. It's not just lawmakers, right? We, we know that this is going to come back, this escalation of a trade war. Is not, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Representative James Comer, Republican out of Kentucky, says, We support the president standing up to China, but we're concerned because agriculture is on the front lines of this trade war. And that's true. We all are. We all are. So Friday's action follows an administrative report in March that complained that China had forced foreign companies to surrender their technology secrets in return for market access and had pilfered other advanced U.S. technologies through a campaign of cyber theft and investment in Silicon Valley startups. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? We all know what happened. If you're in the cybersecurity business, you know what the deal with that is, right? They're, you have to give them access to everything you got if you want to do business there. And they play on your, our, our greed, on our collective greed of wanting to make money and being capitalists. And we want the access to the market we want to get there. It's a big market over there. And then, of course, you open everything up and boom, they just steal everything. 
right? They got a long-term thought process here. This is not the short term. They have a very long-term thought process. Now, President Trump announced that, quote, these practices harm our economic and national security and deepen our already massive trade imbalance with China. These tariffs are essential to preventing further unfair transfers of American technology and intellectual property to China, which will protect American jobs. Now, that's a strong statement, man. Unfair transfer of American technology and intellectual property to China. Just giving it to them, man. God, terrible. The Chinese government is pursuing a $300 billion program of subsidies to enable its companies to dominate, dominate, that is, Next generation technologies such as artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, which all just ups the stakes for Trump's efforts to preserve U.S. technology secrets. So China has a history of targeting industries such as steel or solar energy for growth, which results in excessive investments by its state-led firms that in turn swamps global markets, driving prices to unsustainable levels and making it all but impossible for private companies to compete. Now, this is not market capitalism, this senior official said, this senior administration official said. They said you know, they were speaking again on the condition of anonymity to, to brief reporters. These are state policies where they are targeting certain industries. It's the government of China that's doing this, right? Trump's complaints about China's trade practices are shared by many business leaders, but there is little support for using import taxes, which are paid by Americans, as a tool against the Chinese. Which I don't, I don't know about that one. Um, I, I just think you saw a lot of support there by other uh, government officials in the United States on both sides of the aisle. So, Thomas J. Donahue, President and Chief Executive of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, said imposing tariffs place the cost of China's unfair trade practices squarely on the shoulders of American consumers, manufacturers, farmers, and ranchers, and this is not the right approach. Now, I don't disagree with what he said. It does place a lot of this on, on these great Americans, these great patriots and the consumers and well, the manufacturers, especially the farmers and the ranchers, right? They're going to take a hit uh, on, on this, uh, it seems, in the short term at least. But then what, what is the right approach? I mean, I don't see anybody coming up with any other alternatives, right? I mean, I don't like it either. Like, I don't want American farmers to be hurt here. And we'll, we'll have to figure out a way to fight back and, and, and our, our, our manufacturers and our ranchers who get hit with this, these tariffs to get some relief, but to sit around and do nothing is unacceptable anymore. It's just unacceptable. So the rest of the article goes on about the sophistication of the U.S. relationship with China and North Korea and yada, 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 right? I mean, we get it. We get the sophistication of it and how complex it is. But how about this? First and foremost, stop stealing from us. How's that? First and foremost, up front and center. Enough is enough. So we're going to take a quick break here, folks, but... But first, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. 
We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors and then be right back with our special guest, partner with Cybersecurity Advisory Services at Ernst & Young, William Beer, coming up after these short messages. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the principal of cybersecurity advisory practices with Ernst & Young out of New York, William Beer. William, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, George. Great to be here. So, William, today we're talking about how cybersecurity is moving from an anchor to innovation to an enabler of innovation, so to speak, and how cybersecurity professionals can actually build value in the digital domain while maintaining that fine balance between regulation and privacy and risk and security. I mean, they're juggling a lot of things here, right? So, but I, I know, and I spoke about it a little bit before, I think very often a firm's focus on preventing cyber threats has also delayed the firm's digital transformation and innovation efforts. And this is exactly why, whether it's right or wrong, that it seems like there's a perception out there that cybersecurity is sort of seen as a drag or even an obstacle for executives pushing this digital innovation effort across their enterprise. So I first, I want to talk about the disruption in the digital space and then we'll move on to some other things in culture and cybersecurity and and the digital domain specifically. But the digital and and fintech driven disruption and transformation continues, but at what price is this going to cost everyone as as we continue to just drive and hammer this home? That's a great question, George. You know, I think what we're seeing, um, it really depends on who you're speaking to, first of all. So if you're speaking to uh, heads of digital cyber, sorry, digital strategy, they are very concerned about cybersecurity. But I think one of the biggest challenges we see is that they're struggling to understand 
the far-reaching implications of cybersecurity on their digital strategies. In a recent survey that we did in EY, 67% of heads of digital strategy actually expressed concern or reluctance to proceed with some of their initiatives because of cybersecurity. So it clearly is top of mind for a lot of executives. So what kind of new technologies then are out there that you're seeing in the digital space that you think are really disruptive? Like what, what and how, how are they impacting uh, the cybersecurity industry specifically? Well, you know, a lot of folks talk about emerging technologies and refer to the cloud and refer to uh, blockchain and RPA. Personally, I believe a lot of those technologies have already emerged. Where I'm starting to see uh, a lot of questions being raised and a lot of concern is around things such as commercial quantum computing. Sure, that may still be a little far out, but there's a lot of very smart people asking some really difficult and tough questions around how things like commercial uh, quantum computing could actually impact organizations' strategy with regards to encryption. Other clients of mine are also looking at drones. And while drones may not immediately spring to mind as something that could impact cybersecurity, a lot of companies are thinking about, once again, what are the far-reaching implications and how could this affect their overarching programs? Yes, quantum computing is something that we had a, a whole episode on, on uh, well, not a whole episode, but probably like a segment of, of, of an episode uh, here on Task Force 7 Radio, and we were talking about it, and it got a lot of play on social media too. Specifically with RPA, though, can you, get, can you dive a little bit deeper into that? Like, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, you say RPA is already out there. How is it out there? Because when we, when we talk about RPA a lot, we're always, you know, talking about the fact that it always introduces more risk into your environment than one thinks. It, you know, it might, you know, help you automate and streamline processes, but it also introduces risk into the environment that has to be measured at the same time, right? So what are you seeing around that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, George, because you used the word time, which I think is really relevant here. One of the challenges and problems we see with RPA is simply that, the scalability and the performance of these RPA farms. When things are moving so very fast, a lot of the traditional ways we apply um, risk and control measures to cybersecurity are, are struggling to keep up with that pace of change. And the other thing that I think is interesting to reflect on is digital identities. So what sort of identity are you going to assign to the RPA that is acting on your behalf? So clients are struggling with those two things primarily, you know, the speed, the scale, and also the question around identity and how can you assign an identity to an RPA that's acting on your behalf? So look, you're, you're being a real senior guy with a big four in EY and you get around a lot and you have the opportunity to work with many different clients with many different problems. So Getting your perspective on some of this, so what, what's some of the key challenges that you seeing, are you seeing that your clients are facing today? Well, George, I, I think it still tends to be less about the technology and more about the people. Um, a lot of the organizations that we work with, as you said, are very large, very complex uh, enterprises, often speaking, very, very global. And one of the key challenges they face is how can the different teams that are responsible for different parts of the solution, so think cybersecurity, think privacy, think fraud, and then obviously the digital teams, how can they work together? How can they share best practices? How can they make sure that they're all in sync when the organization launches a new digital service or a new digital enterprise transformation project? To my mind, it always comes back to the people and primarily the culture. And something that I think is really interesting 
that I think the cybersecurity industry needs to reflect on is also the mindset. I, the, the digital teams that I've been, in, been working with and I've had the pleasure to engage with are working really fast and are very, very free-flowing in terms of what they're doing, how they're doing it. And that sometimes is at odds with the way we do things in cybersecurity because cybersecurity tends to be about risk and control and checking. And in the digital world, it's much fast paced. And so I think that that is one of the biggest challenges they face. How do they sync up and how do they bring those different teams together? You know, so I think, you know, cybersecurity should be about risk and control and those things, but it should also be about speed and, and agility because, you know, it's almost like I kind of describe it a lot of times we're like a big freighter in the ocean and we're getting attacked by a bunch of speedboats and we're trying to figure out how to you know, <laughs> warn them off and, uh, and get them away from us. And it's just, I think speed and be able to, for us to be able to adopt to our environment is key to success. And when you say people, right, when you say people, do you, are you, are, do you think that this, the skill sets in each one of these big complex companies, do they vary and so differently in your, in your eyes when you, when you do work with these companies? Yeah, I, I truly believe they do, George. Yeah. I, I, you know, if we think about some of the surveys that are published, you know, ISAC is calling out a shortage of, what, 2 million cybersecurity professionals moving forward. That concerns me. But I do think there is an opportunity to think about adjacent skill sets and working with other professionals who have similar skill sets to address some of the challenges that we touched on. If I reflect again on my last... I I don't know, six, 12 months in terms of projects and work that I've done, some of the more exciting and interesting things that I've done on behalf of my clients are with the digital teams. And I've learned so much from that group in terms of a different way of working, a different focus. It's, it's really, really exciting what's happening in the digital world. And I'm a little concerned sometimes that the security teams are not plugged into those initiatives from the beginning. So by joining up, by sharing ideas, by trying to buddy up with some of those digital teams, I'm convinced we can get cybersecurity a place at the table when those important decisions are being made about new services and products. You know what we should do? We should probably define digital innovation for our audience. And you and I were talking about this the other night at dinner among a, a bunch of cybersecurity professionals. And so what, what exactly is digital innovation? Well, digital innovation or digital enterprise transformation, to my mind, is really around the use of new and emerging technologies. So if we're talking about financial services, it often comes from the fintech world to help review, redefine back office processes and launch new services and new products for clients. And so it's really around looking at the legacy, looking at the old processes and understanding how they can be revamped, re revitalized, but, but primarily by taking advantage of new and exciting technologies such as the ones we discussed earlier. So you mentioned, you mentioned culture. I wrote down culture before. Um, how, how do, how, let's talk about that for more. How can cybersecurity be better integrated into a digital innovation team and so that we, we create a culture of collaboration and, and cooperation between the two, uh, digital and cybersecurity? Well, that's, it's a great question, and, and I don't think there's an easy answer to that, George. But if I think back to some of the more exciting uh, and the interesting and successful projects that I've worked on again, it's really about tone from the top. And I'll give you an example. I remember I walked into uh, the office of the CISO at a very large bank, probably about eight months ago. And we walked into the office, it was our very first meeting with him. And we started to talk about what we were seeing in the marketplace with regards to trends and new developments in the cyberspace. And he put up his hand, he said, stop, stop, stop. What I want to talk about today is how cybersecurity can enhance 
the relationship that our customers have with the bank. I want to talk about how cybersecurity can increase trust and confidence and make the relationship stickier. Now, that's a fascinating conversation and a difficult question to ask, but I think by setting that type of vision and by setting the tone at the top at that level, it begins to percolate down. And at that organization where I've had the pleasure of doing some work, clearly everyone, thinking, everyone is thinking about the bigger picture. They're not just thinking about cybersecurity in isolation, but as I mentioned before, they're thinking about convergence with fraud, with privacy, with resiliency, all supported by user experience, to help support the relationship with the, the clients, uh, sorry, the organization's clients. So I think it really comes, up, comes down to tone from the top and strategic vision. Is AML included there in that group? <laughs> Great question. I think AML is trying to catch up, George, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, you ask a great question because the amount of clients that are coming to us asking questions about convergence and saying, hey, why do we have so many overlapping technologies? Why do we have different business units that are doing similar things but are not talking to each other? And why aren't we using, you know, the common data set that we have to get a better grip and to get a better visibility of our level of risk? So the good news is, is that a lot of clients are having this journey, but it depends, you know, where they are. A lot of them are at different stages in their, in their trip. Yeah, I think I just gave a lot of people heartburn when I mentioned AML. <laughs> you gave me heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so look, when we, when we consider all these things, we're considering the digital domain um, space. Can cybersecurity be a part of the client's value proposition? And can it actually play a positive role in growing revenue and market share for the company? I, I truly believe so. And once again, going back to that conversation with the CISO, um, he, he truly was pushing us hard to uh, answer that question. I think that there is a certain degree of concern and, and fully justifiable and reluctance in the security community that if cybersecurity begins to become part of the value proposition and begins to become marketed, it may actually draw in more attacks. But I think the, mature, the more mature organizations we work with have already recognized that that is is inevitable. And as they compete in the marketplace and look for differentiators, they will and clearly are looking at how cybersecurity can help them. And an example that uh, I think might be very relevant for this discussion is, is biometrics. We had the, um, the pleasure of doing a very large project for an organization probably about a year ago. We were asked to implement biometric solutions in their mobile uh, application. And what we did that made a remarkable difference is we took a group of cybersecurity folks and we embedded them in the digital team. And that was the first step to success because they were then part of the decision-making process from the beginning. But what was really interesting, George, is as the biometric, and not just the biometric authentication solutions, but as the different solutions were implemented in the product, they actually became part of the value proposition because the clients found it very, very convenient to be able to switch from one system to another. So while the bank had initially done that because they were thinking about authentication, they were thinking about how they could get a better solution in place, they hadn't considered the marketing bonus from that. So it really was a bonus. And I think more and more organizations are starting to think about that and push the envelope pretty aggressively. So considering some of the issues on the, on the digital domain space we spoke about and some of the culture issues as well, what do cybersecurity professionals need to do here? What do they need to focus on? Focus on in terms of what? Just in general? And or? Focus on change, you know, concentrating on this shift in a culture 
uh, getting this cultural change to make sure that they're adding the value that we just spoke about and growing revenue and market share and, and, and you know, basically achieving the, the goal of the business and having that, being that business enabler instead of, you know, being the, the, basically the obstacle and the challenge that the business sure. sees when they're implementing these products. How, how, do the, the, how does the average cybersecurity professional uh, go about doing this and getting it done? Well, that's a tough question. I'm not sure I got all the answers to that, but I, I'll take a stab at it. I was at a conference uh, in Europe probably about six, a month, six months ago, and someone said something on the stage that resonated quite well with me, which was the following. They said cybersecurity teams need to get out of the suburbs and into the downtown offices where the decisions are being made. Cybersecurity needs to become more visible and needs to become part of executives' decisions-making process. Right now, I think, unfortunately, cybersecurity is equated with risk. It's equated as, uh, you know, with negative things. And I think as an industry, that is the opportunity. We have the opportunity to kind of turn the model on its head, better engage with business folks, marketing folks, PR folks, and help them understand how cybersecurity can really help them. I would actually argue that the people in most large organizations who best understand confidence, trust, brand, are the marketing people and are the PR people and maybe the social media teams. So I would actually suggest that it could be very advantageous if cyber folks were able to buddy up with some of those team, teams, understand what the marketing plan is, what the social media plan is, um, the PR plan, and make sure that they understand how cybersecurity could be a component of that as opposed to just a barrier or a group of people who are saying, no, you can't do that. So once again, it goes back to what I said earlier in this conversation that you know, I think we've got a lot to learn in cyber. And I think clearly the digital teams with their big projects, their executive recognition and their different way of working offer a lot of opportunities for us to learn. So I think things like job rotation are also a great, great mechanism to look at and reflect on. Is there an opportunity to take um, teams of cyber people, and as I mentioned before, consider putting them in the digital groups and vice versa to build those networks, to build those relationships and build bi-directional understanding and better, better comprehension of each other's worlds? You know, I think that's really good advice, William. I mean, I do. I think that's a great answer, actually, because I think there's a lot of people in the cybersecurity space. Maybe some of the executives know what the line of business strategy is, and, they, and the executives know what maybe the tech strategy is that, you know, the cybersecurity strategy needs to be aligned to. But when you get down into the lower ranks and even some of the mid -man middle management and the cybersecurity team, especially in some of these larger organizations, I doubt they ever even read or put their eyes on the LOB strategy. That's just my guess at it from what I've seen in the industry. And I think, you know, having that integration and, and getting into the downtown offices as you speak and getting eyes on, on this LOB strategy and the people that are, you know, are responsible for employing it can really make a difference in understanding, you know, where their value is and, and being an enabler. So, one, other, one other thing right. that we tried, George, that worked quite well was, you know, as, as cybersecurity professionals go to conferences and go to networking events, bring someone from your marketing team, bring someone from your PR team, buddy up with them. And I think you'll find that the conversations will be very interesting and very broad. And I think both groups, again, will have the opportunity to learn from each other. So that's something that I had started to try a couple of months ago. And as I said before, learn a lot from those folks. And I think it's given me a different perspective on not just the risk, but more importantly, the opportunities and how to use cybersecurity differently. Are you finding that most digital development teams are both digital savvy and cybersecurity savvy as well? 
Like, mm. are they in both sides <laughs> of the fence? I, I don't think so. Not yet. I, I, I think, um, I, I, let me tell you a, a quick story. Um, as we, you know, go to clients and we talk to our clients about digital enterprise transformation and what we're seeing in the marketplace, you know, for quite some time, I've suggested to, to colleagues, let's get cyber on the agenda. Let's get cyber on the agenda. And inevitably, what would happen would be cybersecurity would get 10 minutes at the end of the agenda, and we'd run out of time at the end of the day, and we'd never get to cyber. So I thought about this, and I thought, we're doing this all wrong. The right way to do it is to scrap cybersecurity completely from the agenda and embed it in every section. And that's what we've started to do. And uh -huh. now people don't see it as a blocker, but they see it as an interlocked or an integral part of the digital discussion. So that's what I've been trying to do. And that seems to be a much more, how can I say, easier way to begin to engage with these folks as opposed to saying, hey, have you thought about cyber? Have you thought about the risks? By embedding it in from the beginning, it's made those conversations and those engagements much easier to do. So how about executives? How about executives in both domains, actually, in the cybersecurity space and the digital domain? Are they in the know with, when it comes to both domains? Or? You know, I, I think in the digital domain, they do understand or they are aware of some of the threats and the risks from cyber because it's, it's almost impossible, as you know, to pick up a newspaper or look at a website today without seeing some sort of piece of news around a breach. And I recall a conversation I was having with head of digital strategy for a very large global uh, bank. And I said to him, I love what I'm seeing. Your strategy is, is fantastic. It's comprehensive. It's, it's one of the most advanced, exciting things I've seen for a while. But when I asked him, what is your biggest concern or what's keeping you up at night? He said cybersecurity. And what he said was, I'm concerned that I don't have the right people supporting my digital strategy from the cyber teams. I don't have the right skill sets. And I don't have the right geographical coverage. Um, so that was a bit of a wake-up call for me because this is, once again, an extremely large organization and very global and very advanced. And if the head of digital strategy in that organization feels uncomfortable with the level of maturity and the level of service he, he, he's getting from his cyber team, then I think it probably doesn't bode very well for smaller and medium-sized organizations. All right, William, we have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from William Beer after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the principal with EY Cybersecurity Advisory Services out of the great city of New York, William Beer. So, William, I want to pick up where we left off in the last segment. We were talking about some cultural issues before the break, and we also talked a little bit about organizational structures, but I want to dig a little bit deeper on the organizational structure issue. And so, when we think about these cybersecurity teams operating within the right team, you know, having the right organizational model, the right organizational structure to allow it to act as a business enabler. I just want to see what your opinion is on how important this is. And I'll give you an example. Like, for instance, the, the line of business, the LOB CISOs, or sometimes they call them sector CISOs, and I've heard it called a bunch of different things, but basically these, the, the business CISOs, do they report directly to the CISO or do they have a dotted line to the CISO and really have a budget that's within the, the LOB? And also, we have um, regional CISOs as well. And those regional CISOs, obviously, they work a lot with the business CISOs and then everybody kind of reports up to the, the, you know, the head uh, chief information security officer uh, in any organizations that you look, look at. And so, I've seen this done a lot of different I've seen the CISO report the legal. I've seen the report to you know, the administrative group, like the COO or the CAO, you know, I've seen a report to the security group and even audit in some sense. So what is your opinion about the organizational structure and, and how you see it being, you know, the best model? What is the best model maybe or, you know, that we could use to be a business enabler in security? Well, that's probably one of the toughest questions I've been asked in a long time, George. <laughs> and, I, I get, <laughs> and I'm not sure, again, if there's an easy answer to it because, you know, as you said yourself, um, there isn't one size fits all. I think it depends on the, the size of the organization. It depends on the sector. I think it also depends on the culture um, to a certain degree of the organization itself. Personally, I, I'm not as hung up on the org chart itself uh, as I used to be. I used to have lots of you know complex, far-reaching discussions with clients and, 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 and folks in the security industry around, as you said, where and who should the CISO report up to. But I think what's happened over the last... Uh, 12 to 24 months is quite interesting, which is there's been a lot of discussion around what is the role or what is the profile of a CISO today? And I think that that answer or that question is almost just as important as the org chart. So what is the the skill set of a CISO in 2018, 2019, 2020 moving forward? What should he or she have in terms of, you know, skills, um, should they be a public-facing CISO or they, should they be behind the scenes operating only internally? Um, I know that uh, as of late, a lot of CISOs have been thrust into the public light 
to represent the organization they work for, which kind of goes back to what we were saying before around can the security organization actually add value to the enterprise or to the company? And I clearly believe it does. So, I, 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 well, I understand that the org chart's important, and clearly a CISO needs to have authority and visibility at the highest level. I think it's just important just as important, um, the skill set of that individual. They need gravitas. They need good communication skills. They need to be able to have the opportunity and or the mandate, I think, to speak publicly and speak openly about what the organization is doing around security because I think that those are things that will help and support the enterprise when and inevitably when something does, does, does go wrong. So... When you look at the CISO's role, do you think the digital transformation push has changed the CISO role at all? Or not really? It's just I, another, another, you yeah. know, it's just another area where they're just going to you know, push their, you know, obviously their, their strategy into this space and execute it in somewhat the same way they do with other you know, team members. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think, I think that the digital enterprise transformation projects and initiatives that we're seeing are going to require more help and support from the security organizations. As I said before, an overwhelming number of, of digital uh, enterprise transformation leaders are concerned about the support they're getting from the security organization. So I think it will drive more requirements, more need um, and help and support from the security organizations. Another thing to keep in the back of your mind, which I think is important is we're seeing, as I mentioned before, we're seeing an incredible amount of convergence between fraud, privacy, resilience, um, and that is also making the CISO's role and organization more complicated. Some organizations are bringing physical security into the mix. So once again, I don't think it's only about the org chart, but I think it's about roles and responsibility, and then does that individual have the right skill set to support the business properly? That's what I think will make a difference moving forward. So one of the things I wrote down from our, the, the second segment of the show is, is speed and agility. And I, I, I mentioned it, you know, during, you know, one of your comments about in, in the cybersecurity space that speed and agility is one of the main uh, issues that we need to make sure we are constantly uh, thinking about in the cybersecurity space. So, but in your opinion, right, I, I never, I didn't ask you this question, but in your opinion, are cybersecurity experts supported by processes and, and methodologies that are in step? with the rapid pace and in, in, in like change and demand by digital transformation strategies or they have to actually change everything the way they're doing things? I think we need to take a hard and long look at how we support the business. Um, I think that a lot of our methodologies and a lot of our approaches are, I won't say outdated, but potentially could need a refresh. Um, again, when we look at the scale, the speed with which a lot of the digital enterprise transformation projects are taking place, they're fully based on agile, they're using sprints to do their work, they are working at a completely different speed and a completely different pace than what was done traditionally. And that begs the question if our, you know, our frameworks and our methodologies are going to be able to keep up with them. And I, I think the other thing is, is that you know, a, a lot of their focus is, is, and a lot of the work they do is supported by very, very advanced technologies. We used the example of RPA previously. In those environments, uh, are we, are our technologies as well as our methodologies going to be able to keep up? Um, I tend to think they're not. And so I think that wow. this on, honestly creates an incredible amount of exciting opportunities for us in security because I think more work is going to be needed, well, more research and development work will be needed, more technologies are going to be needed to help and support the change that we're seeing. Exciting times. 
Yeah, but the fact that you're seeing that across the enterprise, right, across the industry, I should say, and, and you're seeing that, you know, as, as a common problem, I think is a huge fail on the, on the side of the cybersecurity folks. I mean, that's a huge fail. If you're, it's just because it's just not the digital domain. I mean, we should be, you know, in embracing agile technologies and we should be doing process improvement exercises to make sure that we always have speed. We should be implementing automation. You know, RPA should be on, 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 our, on our minds, but implemented with the thought of, you know, what kind of additional risk we're implementing and in, introducing into our environments. It's just, to me, it just seems like a big fail. I mean, if, if, the, if, 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 you know, if that's a challenge to the digital transformation process, then it's a challenge to other places as well, I would imagine. No? Yeah, you know, I, I agree that there is a, a gap. Um, I'm maybe going to be a little wow. more diplomatic, but I think there. <laughs> I do yeah, think I there is. to be so diplomatic. <laughs> but there is a gap, and it needs to be addressed. Um, again, what I'm concerned about, and what I've started to see at some organizations, which 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 worries me, is if the if the digital folks and the digital projects are not going to get, and they're not able to get the right level of support that they need, they're going to do it themselves. And they will start to um, look at, you know, what sort of technologies, what sort of controls, what sort of teams and people they can bring into their own organization to bolster their efforts. So, again, I think we've got an opportunity to step up, but we've got to step up fast. So, when we talk about this digital transformation, what keeps your clients up at night when they start to think about their digital transformation journey? I mean, what is it that really bothers them the most? Well, George, you know, I've, I've got the uh, privilege of working with a lot of banks. And when it comes to banks, it is really around trust. And I, I think that um, as they build out these new and exciting and complex systems and environments, there is a lot of concern around what would happen if it all went wrong. Um, I don't think, as I said before, uh, a lot of organizations have necessarily thought through the far-reaching implications, um, but there is a lot of concern around brand protection, trust. Another interesting area is resilience. Um, uh, there's a lot of focus in the industry and a lot of discussion and debate right now around resilience, which is positive. So I think it's really those, those three, or th three or four things combined that are, are keeping, up, uh, keeping up at night some of the senior executives I'm dealing with. So I've heard the term digital trust now a few times. Is there something specific that that means or does it just mean the trust and confidence that people have in the whole transformation journey? Well, based, based on our thinking, it's really a combination, as I said before, of cybersecurity, privacy, fraud prevention services, resiliency, and all supported and complemented by a laser focus on user experience. If user experience, George, I think is important and something we haven't really touched on, but, and I don't want to come across as overly critical of the security industry, but when I think about the, the focus and the, um, the, the skill set that exists in the digital teams to ensure that brand is protected and that the user experience is top of mind when they design new solutions. I, I struggle and fear that oftentimes that is not the case in the security industry. And I'll give you an example. You know, every morning when I connect and I log on to the VPN to get onto the corporate network, it's a bit of a hassle. The VPN experience is not as streamlined as you would expect. It takes me a, a, it takes me a fair amount of time to get the codes in and get connected. 
it hasn't really been designed thinking about user experience. When I turn on my smartphone and I want to access the corporate network on my smartphone, the VPN experience on my smartphone is very fast, very seamless, and it's very frictionless. And so I think that that just demonstrates again that, you know, depending on the platform, depending on the provider, depending on who's designed the solution, we have a lot again to learn from folks who are working in the digital space. So shifting gears here a little bit, right? I want to talk a little bit about some of the risks that people are, are, are mitigating in the digital transformation space as it, as, as it concerns cybersecurity specifically. But cybersecurity, third-party risk has always been a, a big cybersecurity concern. Um, and so are, are these open platforms and these other third-party partnerships in when you talk about the digital transformation, are they exposing like financial institutions to increased security risk? Well, or is it just the same as, is it, is, is, is it the same, but it's, it's you know, it's, but it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking it's, I think it's different here, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. What are you seeing? I, I think it is different, George. What we're seeing is a lot of these um, new initiatives, digital enterprise transformation projects rely on an ecosystem of partners. Um, so it's not just about the single organization itself, but they right. share data, they share information on a frequent basis with a network of partners to enhance their offering. And that makes for a, a much more comprehensive and compelling set of services or products. But it also, once again, begs a lot of questions around um, confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. As soon as you begin to partner with third parties and begin to open up your systems and share information with them, it does begin to raise a whole series of questions around have people thought about what could go wrong and what, again, the far-reaching implications could be. Something I, I find very useful to do with my clients and it's been very successful and resonated very well, not just with the cyber teams, but also with some of the digital teams, is when they're designing or thinking about a new process or a new service or a new product, to think about and reflect on, could we design maybe a tabletop simulation exercise like we use in our world for the business? So could we design a tabletop exercise that looks at what would happen if there was um, a data leak or data breach, an attack, and what would the implications be on the business and how would that involve their partners or third parties? That's a really powerful way. It kind of goes back to your question earlier around creating awareness and understanding. A really powerful way to build the awareness as well as obviously pinpointing any sort of weaknesses in your processes and your systems. So that's something that we've started to use very successfully and not just in the cyber teams, but also in the digital or in the business itself. So aside from wargaming, and including third-party relationships in the wargaming exercises. I mean, you seeing any other way that companies are mitigating this risk? For instance, maybe are they wargaming the compromise at the third party themselves instead of, you know, at the company? And, and, and even fourth-party relationships now, I think, is a really big thing. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you see? Yeah, I think, I think th third party and fourth party are, are becoming, primarily fourth party, becoming more top of mind for organizations. One thing that we are seeing, which I think is, is quite exciting, is, is the, use of the use of specific services and threat intelligence to provide organizations with 
a better perspective of how their partners are doing. So there are, there are companies out there that'll scan an organization's external network and will assign a score to them and then provide that score back to the, the company that's using the, the, the partner services. That I think is, is, is a very exciting development. I think there still needs to be, um, there's still work that needs to be done. But I think by using threat intelligence, by using automation, by scanning organizations, um, uh, infrastructure from an external perspective, assigning them a score, it does give you at least a litmus, te litmus test, if you will, of, of where they are with the security and then allows you to understand where you need to dig deeper. So that, to my mind, is an exciting development. Still needs to, to mature a bit, but I think it's offering a lot of interesting insight and input to organizations who are partnering with large amounts of third-party companies. So, William, it was great having you on the show, man. I feel like we're just sitting at the bar talking. <laughs> and we, you know, we, we can talk about this for hours, I guess. But uh, I'm really, really glad that you came on with us. And I hope you come back often. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, George. Well, thanks so much. So, we've run out of time, folks. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUV.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 